this is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind with me, psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman. And me, science journalist Marnie Chesterton. This is the podcast where we delve into the psychology of everyday life and answer your questions about human behaviour. Expect fascinating facts, scintillating science, and this might even improve your life. In this episode, we're digging into some psychological myths, including whether playing Mozart to a baby makes them more intelligent. Do people really leave their bodies during an out-of-body experience? The rewards work, and when it comes to decision-making, are two heads better than one? I guess it depends on which two heads you're talking about. Let's get on with the show. Richard, we had such a great response to our first episode on psychological myths that we wanted to do some more. And first up, I want to talk about rewards. Is it a myth that offering a reward when persuading, say, a child to do some homework or an employee to work better, does that actually work? I can see why it would. So I love myths, psychological myths, because we all carry around these ideas or we read about them and and, and so on. And they become part of the public consciousness and often we don't look at the evidence. So the rewards idea goes back a long way. In the 1970s, Mark Lepper uh, did a sort of pioneering study where he went into schools, he split the kids into two groups and he said, we're going to have a drawing lesson. And he rewarded one of the groups for taking part in the lesson and doing some art and didn't with the other group. Then they leave it a couple of weeks. They go back in with the drawing materials again. Uh, There's the two groups and they see who picks up the materials and starts to draw. And because we're talking about psychological myths, you might imagine what the result is. Most people would think, well, hold on a minute, you've got one group of kids that were rewarded for drawing, so surely they're the ones that are more motivated, and actually they're the ones that aren't at all interested in drawing. It's the kids that weren't rewarded that then want to, to carry on with the art. Why? Why Why aren't you motivated? You've, you know, you've had a nice drawing lesson, mm. you've got a reward at the end of it. Because we like to explain our behaviour to ourselves. So if I was to say to you, look, I'd like you to do something, here's 100 quid to do it. You start to think, well, hold on a second, it must be something I don't really enjoy. Otherwise, I wouldn't be offered the 100 quid. If I enjoy it, I'll just get on and and do it. And that's precisely the thinking with the kids. No. The kids are thinking, well, adults offer me rewards to eat vegetables or whatever it is that I don't want to do. They're offering me rewards to do art, so it must be that I don't really like art. So the moment those rewards are taken away, they're not interested in the task anymore. So we did a similar study years ago on a BBC programme called People Watchers, where we said to people, would you mind tidying up a park, going collecting litter in the park? Two groups of people. We said to one, we're going to pay you uh, for doing it. The other group weren't paid quite so much. Uh, Then we asked people how much they enjoyed it. Well, the people that had been paid didn't like it at all. Uh, because they get paid to do things that they don't like doing. Yeah. The group that had done it pretty much for free said, oh, this is great, we'll carry on all afternoon. No! Because they convinced themselves they must be enjoying it, otherwise why would have they have done it for nothing at all? So That's it's, it's, amazing. Well, so, but you did pay both groups. You said you... Yeah, yeah. So one was paid a large amount. Well, it's a BBC study. One was paid a, a relatively Two small amount. Two pounds and, and a gummy bear. <laughs> and the other was paid even less. 80p. Uh, so, but you saw exactly the, the, the same effect. So it's an interesting one that if you reward somebody for doing something, the moment you take away that reward, they stop doing it. They will continue to do it for the reward. So it's a short-lived effect. But often you can't keep on rewarding something. So the key to it, to either find something they enjoy doing or explain why it's a good thing to be doing. 
So the, the motivation, the enjoyment becomes intrinsic. So you say to people, well, you clear up the park and now we've got a nice clean park and everyone's enjoying that. And now it isn't about picking up litter. You're doing it for a much bigger reason and you don't need to reward them for it because they understand the intrinsic motivation. Interestingly, the same thing seems to work with corvids. Up. Corvids. Yeah, so jays, intelligent birds, sort of crows, ravens, corvids. Right. There's a researcher up near Cambridge who, who's got a corvid palace. She describes it, it's Nikki Clayton, she describes it as kind of five-star accommodation for these birds. Right. We, who are smart, really smart. If you're trying to motivate a smart bird... Mm to do a task and uh, <laughs> and cheese motivates them right. and so they've learned over the course of experiments that yes. they get cheese yes. if you give them i don't know a piece of cucumber what one of these birds would do would be to take the cup with their poultry reward tip it upside down fling it across the room and then actually bodily turn their little bird body <laughs> Away from the um, researcher in dis- very picky birds in disgust. It, it, it's absolutely, and they're fine. They're fine doing the experiment if you just but, do the experiment. But once you've started rewarding them, yes, you need to keep rewarding them. So there we go. Yeah, and and so it's exactly the same idea. Now, if you could make that fun for the birds, yeah, then they'll keep on doing it all day. So that's rewards. Yep. Um, that's one of our little mind myths. Uh, another one is about Mozart. Okay, so. Yes, I know a little bit about this. The Mozart effect, right? Yes. Is this that thing where if you play Mozart to your unborn child, it becomes smarter? That's right. So this is um, 90, early 1990s study, Francis Rorscher, and they have this great idea, very simple idea, that you take a bunch of students, you put them into three groups, one of them listens to Mozart, uh, another has a sort of standard relaxation tape, and the last one just sits there in complete silence. And then they do a kind of mental manipulation spatial task, which is essentially like folding up a bit of paper, making a cut, and then saying, when I unfold the paper, what will the pattern be? Okay. And they find that the students that have been listening to Mozart outperform the other two groups. Which is weird. It's a little bit weird. It's a little bit weird. We have a a listener question sent in by Dr. Selena on Twitter about this. And she says, as a classical music fan who isn't that fussed by Mozart, does this work with other composers like Vaughan Williams, Tchaikovsky, Hayden, Beethoven? Or is is the effect specific to the Viennese child genius? So is there something absolutely magic about Mozart? Which is a great question. Isn't it? So uh, we're going to get to that in a second because with the original research, early 1990s, a small group of students, Uh, adult students, uh small effect of Mozart on this particular mental visual task. Journalists then take that and it becomes this kind of game of telephone, as, as it's called. The, the, you know, one, a lot of journalists write about it, exaggerate a little bit, next exaggerate a bit more, and so on and so on. And it becomes, you should play Mozart to babies to make them more intelligent, even though there is no evidence for that at oh. all. There's no evidence. This oh. was a small group of students who were doing a mental visual task and the people listening to Mozart did a little bit better. So it's really down to the media exaggerating this. That's where the idea of the Mozart effect comes from. Oh, wow. Uh, but then to get back to the very, very good question, uh, people start to replicate the original study and there is an effect there. Okay. It's not one of these 
replication crisis. No, no, oh, no, it there, didn't there, actually happen. It's there, a smaller effect a than you might imagine, but it is, it is actually there. And the question is why? And the answer is it's mediated by mood. That is to say that most people like Mozart. It puts them in a good mood. And when you're in a good mood, a little bit higher scores on that task. If you take, and it's another study, two groups of people, one of which loves Stephen King stories, another group love Mozart, you play in either Mozart or Stephen King. The people that love the Stephen King short stories, when they hear the short stories, do better on the task. When they hear Mozart, they don't do quite so well. With the Mozart-loving group, when you play Mozart, they do well on the task. When you play in the Stephen King, they don't do so well. So it's all down to... It's a mood effect. It, it depends what music you like. So to answer that question, if you like Mozart, you'll get a Mozart effect. If you like Beethoven, you'll get a Beethoven effect. It, the music is putting you in a good mood, and that is what's driving the effect. But it's only with adults. This idea that you should play Mozart to babies probably doesn't do any harm, but there's no evidence it does any good. It certainly doesn't make them any more intelligent. I love the idea that someone did... Did someone actually do the experiment with Stephen King oh, absolutely. Short, short stories? Yes, absolutely. That's great. It's great. It's, it, it's a wonderful uh, study. Um, what we do know is that in terms of boosting IQ, learning a musical instrument is actually really good for kids because it teaches self-control and, and practice effects and attention and focusing and so on. So that's the easiest way, if you like, of boosting IQ, if you were wanting to do that. IQ itself, I think, is a quite questionable topic. But if, if you wanted to do that, that's, that's one way in which you can use music. But playing in Mozart, your baby, is probably not going to do that. On. Moving on. Let's move on to talk about dealing with our emotions. So should we scream and shout when we're angry or should we bury it deep down in true British fashion? Yes. And the idea of something being cathartic, which is a Freudian idea. Freud's come up quite a lot already. So the Freudian model of mind is that when you experience something which is frustrating or negative, you often suppress that emotion, that builds up mental energy. And that actually, rather than deal with that, that kind of psychic buildup of energy, you're better off shouting and screaming and getting it out of the system. That, that's the sort of Freudian approach to this. And that has been tested on the test by Brad Bushman. And their test was lovely. So you, first of all, you have to get people really quite annoyed about something. So they took a how, bunch how, of... Yeah, how did they do that? A bunch of students said, well, can you write an essay? Students write the essay. They all get the worst mark you could imagine. The essay is torn to bits by the evaluators. Some of them saying, this is the worst essay I've ever read in my entire life. Students are furious. And then they're put into a couple of different groups. One of them is given some boxing gloves, a picture of the person who apparently evaluated their essay, yeah. that's attached to a punch bag and they're allowed to take out their sense of frustration on the photograph. The other group are asked to just sit quietly in a room for two minutes. Yeah. And what you find is the people that behaved in a very aggressive way have become even more aggressive. Oh. So it's not cathartic, it's the exact opposite. They've become furious about the world. Oh, no. The ones that sat there very quietly actually have dealt with their emotions much better and are much more calm. So it's the exact opposite of a cathartic effect. Okay, so the true British approach of pushing all of your emotions down and not acknowledging any of them at all is actually 
well, why we're such a brilliant nation. <laughs> so, so there's a few things going on there. Certainly in terms of, and this comes back to what I referred to as the as-if principle, and, and, and I wrote a whole book about the as-if principle, which is a William James idea. William James, one of the founding fathers of um, psychology. His thought was that the way in which you feel affects how you behave. You feel angry, so you lash out. But there is a kind of secondary effect which is the way you behave affects how you feel. You lash out, it makes you feel angry. So if you behave as if you're a calm person, you start to feel calm. If you start to punch a bag with some boxing gloves on, you feel even angrier. This is fake it till you make it. Essentially. So I think from a psychological point of view, if there is something that's causing a sense of anxiety and worry, you need to work through what that is. You don't want it bubbling away all the time. But in terms of a short fix... You don't want to go around shouting and screaming. If anything, it's going to make it worse. Are there cultural differences that affect this screaming and shouting versus sitting quietly thing? It's a good question. I mean, most psychological research has been carried out student populations, to be honest. And again, you know, this isn't real world stuff. You could see from the the essay and the boxing gloves and so on. It's the sort of things you have to do uh, to, to get handle the stuff within the lab. And maybe when you take it into the real world, things are a little bit different. So the short answer to that is, I don't know. That work might have been carried out by psychologists tend to be quite limited in uh, in what they actually do and the populations they use. I was reading about weird studies and weird in this case stands for western educated industrialized rich democratic countries and that's just not the world's population is it that's just where the psychology students are coming from. So so a lot of psychology is carried out with student bodies who are particular types of people and that's fine. But it means they, the results may not generalise outside of that population. And psychologists are sometimes quite eager to go, there we go. So that, that tells you a universal truth. Yeah. And often it really just tells you about that population. So need to replicate it in every country of the world. That's right, with every individual in with the world. With every individual in the world. Yes. That seems is, like a you know, good use of money. Yes, it, it keeps you busy. Next, next myth, two heads are better than one. I feel like this isn't a myth. I feel like this is just so obviously true. Is it really better to get help from other people when trying to make a decision or are you better off tackling it alone? Well, I think it's certainly helpful to get other perspectives on anything you're doing. This really, though, is about group decision-making. And of course, it happens a lot. You think, I know the best thing to do is bring everyone together Mm -hmm. and we're going to make a decision as a group. Somehow that's going to be a better decision than how I were to make that decision on my own. Quite a lot of research into it. Uh, James Stoner uh, started that work in the 1960s. And what they've found is that the group tends to make, first of all, essentially riskier decisions and also more polarised decisions. So what happens is you get a kind of groupthink where you don't feel the sense of responsibility that you do as an individual. You think, well, if this all goes horribly wrong, I can just blame the group. Yep. Everyone thinks like that. And so you get a riskier decision or certainly a more polarised decision. And so part of that is, of course, if everyone in the group believes something, believes the same thing, you hear lots of positive arguments for that particular decision. And so you all end up going down there being far more confident than you would do if you're on your own or surrounded by people with different points of view. So I would always argue for find people that disagree with you. They are your, your, your real sources of knowledge 
you know, people go, no, 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 I think you're completely wrong and go and engage with those. Because what we're getting on social media at the moment is huge echo chambers that, that people are actually engaging with other people that just think like them and they're becoming more and more confident that they are correct. I uh, deliberately engage with people or follow people that I disagree with on social yeah. media. And I have to say, it's really bad for my blood pressure because you're, it, you know, you're scrolling through, listening to the, watching their stupid opinions all the time and going, I am a morally good person for doing this. But, but, it, but it's allowing you to see the world from somebody else's point of view, to see how they're looking at the evidence that, that you're looking yeah, at. Yeah. I agree with you about the blood pressure, but I think cognitively, just thinking, all right, hold on a second, before I get too confident... What other ways are there of seeing the world? That doesn't happen in a group where everyone agrees with you, where you all end up being very confident and can all end up being terribly wrong. So what happens with groupthink is that it doesn't become uh, more rational. It just becomes whatever the group believes as as a group of individuals all becomes more confident and you can therefore end up making riskier decisions. So in that sense, many heads are not always better than one. That's so interesting. I would never have thought that you get more polarised decisions from a group. You, you'd assume it just kind of regresses to the mean. Yes. But, but no, no. No, no, no. Years and years ago, I was on a council organisation and there was a very elderly gentleman on there who was in his 80s. And he had this great phrase, whenever anyone on the council would say, um, it's an idea that's never been done before, he would always go, whenever I hear that phrase, I think... I wonder why not. <laughs> that's very good. It's great. That's a very good point. It's a very good point. So, and, and, and that's really stuck with me. So when people go, this has never been done before, instead of going, brilliant, it's new and innovative, I go, I wonder why not. And 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 because you don't want to hear that negative Moral voice. Moral decency. <laughs> you don't hear that negative voice, but actually, you know, it's like the, the pre-mortem. You know, you, you want to know what might go wrong before you, you do it. So, you know, seek out the people that are, are sceptical and at least listen before you make your decision. You're listening to Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind, and in this episode, we're looking at more psychological myths. So we've had a question from Bernice about the complexities of decision-making. Bernice says, decision-making is messy and rarely black and white. We make multiple decisions instinctively with context and feedback. We decide by failing to decide. Decisions coagulate unconsciously. Game theory and likelihood approaches don't really address this messiness. What does? I think that's, that's right. The world is quite messy. And with psychology, you have to go in and you've got to cut the cake up somehow. You've got to decide what to look at. You've got to decide who you're going to look at it with. And you've got to give people some kind of task. And the further that gets away from the real world is the harder it becomes then to generalise your results to the real world. Yes. So I think psychologists are very good at critical thinking and going, okay, right, you're making these assumptions and maybe this isn't true under these circumstances and so on. They're quite good at dealing with ambiguity. And I think it's where students often struggle because they like the idea of there being a single answer. Yes. And psychologists like the idea of going, hold on a minute. Um, so, so with the group decision-making stuff, that's the general pattern. The question is absolutely right. There's real complexity in the real world, as there is with everything. But general rules will bubble up. And the one we've been talking about, which is the group polarisation effect, is one of the rules that bubbles up across many different studies. Moving on to our last myth of this episode, out-of-body experiences. Yes. Um, 
first up, I love this. Uh, can you tell me what an out-of-body experience is? Does that mean you never had one? Presumably, if I've had a dream where I've seen me in the dream and I'm watching it like a movie of me. If it's a dream, probably not so much. An out-of-body experience feels like a genuine experience where you're leaving your body and flying around the room and often you can look back and see your actual body Whatever it is, laying on the couch or whatever. No, obviously yes. I've never had one of those. Have you had one of them? No, I've never had one either. But about 20% of the population have. Very, very common experience. The idea is you feel yourself leave your body. Uh, you can then normally look around and you see your physical body somewhere else and you are located in another point in space. 20% of people. Sorry, I'm still yes. trying to get my head around this. Yes. Okay. Roughly. Okay, so yeah. presumably that means there's a, a wealth of psychologists researching this. There's a lot of the, the, the parapsychological approach, which is, do you actually leave your body? Yeah. And there, what they'll do is put a target somewhere where you can't possibly see it. I love this. And then you have to float up and try and see it. So I know this during, during operations when people talked about having out-of-body yes. experiences and they yes. thought, well, the way to deal with this is to put something high on top of the cupboards. Yes. And so if you have floated up during the operation, you'd be able to read the message on top of the cupboard. That's right. That's, that's Sampania's work. And, and a lot of that is near-death experiences because in a medical context, so the person will think, or the medics might think they're close to death. Um, my understanding from that work is that no one has reported any of those targets. Sadly not, no. no. And that's also the findings from the parapsychological work, is that this is not a reliable way of finding out what's written on the top of the wardrobe. And then you get this next sort of approach, which is associated with many psychologists, uh, parapsychologists, particularly Sue Blackmore. And uh, Sue, a very good friend of mine and in awe of her, her work. She's great. She's great. Um, does a lot of work on consciousness. And Sue goes, well, look, rather than studying whether your soul or uh, your spirit actually leaves the body, why don't we look at the psychology of this? What sorts of people have these experiences? What does that tell us about the psychology of the experience? So I should say, oh, we've mentioned Sue before, but S Sue's motivation was having an out-of-body experience yeah, yeah, so. at, at university as yes, an undergrad. That's right, yes, and then became very curious about yes. it all. But instead of thinking, I actually left my body, she was thinking maybe this was a psychological experience. So she goes around and administers tests to people who have OBEs and tests to people who don't. One of the tests is how easy, we can do this now with you, how easy do you find it to imagine yourself over the other side of the room looking at yourself now? On a, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is, I've no idea what you're talking about, and 10 is, I'm already there. Oh, I can't do 1 out of 10. I can, I've, if I can 1 out of 3. 2, there we go. If, right. I can, if I can shut my eyes and I can put me over that side and yes. I can look at me, but it's not very convincing. Right, okay. And in terms of uh, when you read a book or watch a film, do you feel like you're really there? Do you feel completely absorbed in that experience or do you know that you're sort of reading a book and watching a film? Um, I used to get more I was in it and now I'm a bit more detached. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you would come out as a fairly low scorer for both of those tests and, of course, you haven't had an out-of-body experience. So for once, the uh, little research finding here is in line with the I results have, of uh, the, the proper research. Have not were. ruined your experiment. For Good. once. Uh, and, and that's what Sue found. 
So she found that people who have regularly have OBEs are really good imagining themselves in other situations and looking at themselves. And also, most importantly, are the sorts of people that get highly absorbed in experiences and uh, in books and films and plays and so on. And so her theory was that when those people are in certain situations where they're not receiving very much bodily information, so they're just laying on a sofa, for example, they find it very easy to imagine themselves somewhere else and they become absorbed in that experience. And this is one of the, the theories of OBEs. It's entirely psychological. Okay. I just don't have the imagination of 20% of the population. That's I didn't what want I'm... to say that. <laughs> oh. But I'm with you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very low scorer on both of those, both those things. What a shame. Yes. But it's remarkably easy to get people to, to leave their bodies. I mean, there's been experiments with virtual reality where there's a camera behind you. The image of that camera is feeding into your VR headset. So you're seeing a picture of your own back. Okay. But in, in front of you, as it were. Yeah. It's as if you're sitting in front of yourself. The researcher then touches your own back with a stick, but also appears to touch the body of the person in front of you. And people think, oh my goodness, I'm sitting a few feet in front of myself. Wow. So where we are in space but can be quite easily kind of manipulated. We can make ourselves think we're somewhere else under certain circumstances, particularly if you've got a good imagination and you're very good at being absorbed into experiences. That's great fun. So I think in terms of the take-homes here, we covered, we've covered a lot of ground. Haven't we? Um, so rewards, we found out that a lot of the time they don't work uh, very effective, they can be counterproductive. Mozart is, although child genius, nothing that special. Absolutely. In terms of group decision-making, sometimes one head is better than, uh, than many heads. And if you have an OBE, out-of-body experience, you've just got a lovely florid imagination that sadly Richard you and I both lack absolutely and that where we are is actually surprisingly easy to manipulate so there we go from Podomo and Telltale this has been Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind hosted by Professor Richard Wiseman and Marnie Chesterton our producer is Kate White the executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudno and Matt White and for Telltale are Rami Sabar and Jago Lee. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at WisemanPod. Where we'll be regularly asking you for questions for future episodes. You can also email us at WisemanPod at Podomo.com. And if you like this podcast, tell your friends, leave us a review. If you don't like it, tell your friends you did. Why should you be the only ones to suffer? Although it does help others find us. And don't forget to subscribe. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>